today, brothers and sisters, we are going to be uh, returning, actually, it's been a long while, uh, to the Sermon on the Mount series that we were working on during the spring, but uh, stopped during the midst of this pandemic and also throughout the summer. But uh, I love the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to continuing on where we left off in Matthew chapter 5, this week, verses 33 to 37. Uh, for those of you who have, uh, you know, a modern Bible, a lot of your Bibles will have a little heading over the top that says something like oaths. Um, you know, it's not a word we use very often in our society, but really this is a message in this section on integrity and honesty and uh, why lying, the problems with lying. You know, uh, for us as Christians, I think we can echo, you know, Benjamin Franklin's, you know, words, uh, who he said, that uh, the one thing that can be certain about in this world, nothing can be certain except for death and taxes. And, you know, as Christians, we understand, of course, yes, you know, we, we get taxed. Uh, we understand that death comes to all one day because of the curse of sin. But I think we can add one more thing to that, as I was thinking about Franklin's word, and I would add this, and that is it's not only death and taxes, but also lying in this world. You know, Pamela Mayer is an American editor, uh, American author. She's also a fraud expert and is known as basically being America's uh, probably uh, best expert, really, on the subject of lying. A number of years ago, she gave a, uh, a well-known TED Talk called um, How to Spot a Liar, and has over some, like, 20 million views. You can go on YouTube, and you can watch this thing. And in it, she makes a really fascinating observation about human beings. She says this, Lying is complex, it's woven into the fabric of our daily and our business lives. We are deeply ambivalent about the truth. Now, what she's saying is that the honest truth is that we are not as honest as we think that we are. You know, Meyer actually asserts, Meyer asserts that lying actually begins very, very early on in our development and gets stronger and develops sort of over time. She observes basically that babies actually learn how to do this, and they do this by uh, crying, looking around to see if anybody notices what they're doing, and then they go right back to crying, right? And they learn cause and effect through this, whether or not their crying can bring them results. They might not be in distress, but they realize that making the tears causes people to come to them, and so they fake their distress in order to get the attention that they want. By the time an individual is one years old, they learn a new skill called concealment. In other words, basically, if you're looking at kids, it's kind of like, well, me hide yummy cookie so my sibling can't get it, right? And they learn how to stash stuff, right? At two, they progress actually to the ability to bluff. And by that, you mean things like if I have young kids, so I know it, you catch your young kids doing something they know they're not supposed to be doing, right? Like playing with the cookie jar that they're not supposed to be playing with. And when you come and say, what are you doing? And they, you know, the hands go up and they grab something else and pretend to be, that's called bluffing. It's a more sophisticated skill that takes an additional year to develop, but that's what you get at two. By the time they hit five years old, the progress goes to straight up lying towards you. So to go with the cookies again, you ask a five-year-old, do you know where the cookies are? And you look at the chocolate on their face, and they look right back at you, and they say, I have no idea where the cookies are. See, that's just straight up lying. They might tell you it, might, it must have been disappeared or something of that sort that's rather ridiculous, uh, or the, the hamster ate it. But the point is this, it's unsophisticated, but it is straight up lying actually in its nascent infantile form. By the time the child gets to, uh, well, actually another thing, when they're also that age, they actually begin to develop another skill, and that is the art of uh, flattery and manipulation. So they will use language like, you're the best mommy ever. Can we buy cookies at the store? And now you realize that the first words that were given actually were a calculated move in order to make you smile, and they know somehow intuitively that when you're happy and you're smiling, you might be more willing to acquiesce to their wishes, right? By nine years old, Mayer notes that um, a child develops the ability to become a master of cover-up. In other words, what this means is that a nine-year-old, having spent four years fighting, you know, and, and carving out a place for themselves in the school system or with other people, has learned the ability to think tact uh, tactically. So they'll look at a jar of cookies and say, what if I eat all the cookies out of the center of the jar and leave all the ones on the outside so the jar looks like it's full, but I'll have everything and nobody will notice what I have done. This is called cover-up and the ability to conceal. It's a much higher level function as well, but the, and, but the heart issue is the same. 
How do I get what I want without other people catching me doing what I should not be doing? Nine years old. Mayer says that by the time you get to college, you're going to lie to your mother in one out of five every interactions. And I would add to this, it only gets worse as you become more educated and more sophisticated. If you ever become a financial success, let's say on Wall Street, and you're a mega investor that everybody looks to for advice, and yet you're a shady person, you might actually say things like, I don't know, cookies as well? This COVID-19 pandemic is going to produce a worldwide sugar shortage, and as a result of this, companies like Hershey's and other cookie companies are really going to go under. This is the best time right now for those of you who are smart to dump all of your stocks. And all the people who believe in you and ride on the tails of your success say, my goodness, he, he's the oracle has spoken. Let's go out, and they crash the market by dumping all of their shares. And you knowing that market manipulation is an evil, is an illegal thing to do in the United States and in Canada, of course, I've come up with a way basically to cash in on the low prices due to the stock market crash by having your partner who has money in the Bahamas in some account that nobody knows about quietly take the information that you have given him, buy up everything at a low price, and when everyone realizes that in a couple of months nothing actually truly crashed and the prices go back up to being what they were, your partner sells it out. He splits the profits with you because of your status that you use to get the market to move that way. And then you legitimately and half-truthfully say to the whole world, I have never owned a single stock in a cookie company. Because technically you didn't. But it doesn't mean that you were not dishonest in what you did. Now, you know, we look at that and we go, how could people do such a thing? You know what I mean? Somebody has to lose and, and some people make their money off of manipulation or using other people's misfortune or manipulating them deceitfully, basically, into losing so that they can gain big. You know, I've just, I don't think you'll ever look at cookies the same way again after this. But here's my point in this. It's, 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 it shows us something. The sweetness of a cookie and the desirability of it actually shows, I think it's, a cookie is really like a mirror, and it shows actually the deceitfulness and the bitterness that exists inside the human soul. And that is our heart of dishonesty as a result of sin. You know, it's refined dishonesty as we get older and older, calculated half-truths, uh, but at the same time, it still comes from the same source. You know, I think Mayer is actually completely right when she says, we are against lying and covertly for it in ways that our society has sanctioned for centuries and centuries. We will not admit this, right? But actually, we are for it. See, even animals lie. I remember I was young when I heard about the amazing gorilla named Coco who came to learn American Sign Language and I could actually talk, you know, by signing, a gorilla doing this. One of the things that was interesting about Coco was she once tried, she had this pet fluffy kitten that she really liked. And once she actually tried to blame the kitten, communicating in sign language that it was the kitten that was guilty of ripping a sink out of the wall. Now, you don't need to be a genius to realize that a kitten does not have the strength to tear a sink out of the wall. But even a gorilla would, is willing to lie in order to get punishment away from it. You know, Gad Saad is an evolutionary psychologist who works at the Canadian University Concordia in Montreal. And he commented on a 2010 study from 10 years ago by Kim Sirota in an article that he wrote for Psychology Today called, How Often Do People Lie in Their Daily Lives? And he wrote this, According to that, the average number of lies told per day was 1.65. This, he says, strikes me as surprisingly low. I have the feeling that many participants were lying about the extent of their lying. See, his point is this. We are natural-born liars. We say stuff, right? And you think it occurs in every day. No, that dress does not make you look fat. No, I didn't do it. I had no idea. Or when I used to read resumes when I worked out in industry, things like this. I'm a high-achieving self-starter, a team player, and a problem solver who has extensive experience in designing mission-critical systems. Now, this could be true, but it's hilarious when I read stuff like this, and it's on a new graduate's resume that they're sending out to get their first job. I'm like, how could you possibly have extensive experience in designing mission-critical stuff? You know but this is what we do. We sell ourselves, right? But in one sense, it's a form of manipulation, right? The line is very subtle, right? But, but we do this all the time, putting our best foot forward. 
I mean, I read about people, for example, on Instagram having, I didn't realize this, right, but having a good side of their face and a not-so-good side of their face. And some talked about how they would struggle always to make sure when they took pictures, they would present the side of their face that they thought was best. I never realized I had a good side to my face. You know, I didn't know that one was better than the other, but apparently if you look really hard, half of your face might be marginally better than the other, and that's the one you need to put forward. There's all this... uh, culturally acceptable sort of ways of self-promotion and deceit and so on. Question, why do we do this? Why do we go to such lengths to paint pictures of ourselves that are not real? And the answer to that really is because we're dissatisfied with who we are and we always want to be something that we are not. Kim Sirota says this, why do people lie? People lie when the truth does not work. That's, 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 I think he's nailed it. You lie when the truth does not work for you. So I'll give you a few examples. So, for example, some of you, uh, you work in different jobs. Some of you might be mechanics here. And you work on people's cars. And guess what? It's extremely easy to lie to people who trust you and know nothing about cars by recommending to them repairs that they only kind of need, but you really feel you need because it would give you the profit that you need to keep your company going for the month. Right? So you can say stuff like that because you're unlikely to be caught and people trust you. Or if you're a computer technician and you work with software, nobody ever sees what's on the inside of the code that you write after you compile it and you send it out and you send it to a company. You could bill way, extra, way more hours than you actually need to get the job done. You can make things really messy and do a poor job and nobody has to know on the outside and you still charge them exactly the same amount. This works basically in any field in which you become particularly skilled and good at. Those of you who are doctors, right? those of you who are lawyers, those of you who are professionals in your field, even if you're a professional cleaner, you can come up with ways to make sure that everything else looks clean on the outside, but the stuff on the inside is all dirty, and you don't actually do a good job, but enough to give the appearance of doing so, right? You'll always face that temptation. The better you get at doing things and the more people trust you. So here's my question. Would you behave differently if you knew that your smartphone was always on, was always streaming, and it was always recording everything that you were doing? I think you would. I think you would behave differently. I think you would live differently. Why? Because you wouldn't want to be exposed for doing things that are dishonest or unacceptable in the eyes of society. No one wants to come across as an individual who is untrustworthy or lacks integrity. See, the truth of the matter is, though, if we believe what the Bible has to say, is God is actually always watching your life's live stream. You're always streaming before him, and he sees everything in your life. So you might be able to get away with it from other people, but the question is, will you get away from it before God? And the Bible's answer to that is, no, you cannot escape the one who sees all things and knows all things. See, and if we are made in his image, then dishonest conduct or a conduct that lacks integrity is an absolute insult to this God who himself is honest, does all things well. He is a truth-speaking, promise-keeping God. And if we as his image bearers go and live in a way which is 180 degrees opposite of that, what we do is we insult our maker to his face and in the eyes of all others who are in our presence as well. And the question that we need to ask ourselves is, is lying necessary? Do you have to do it? Do you have to do it to take care of yourself? Is it actually truly a bad thing? Are there consequences for it? And if so, and we have a sense of remorse over this, how can we actually stop lying and actually live a life that's honest, especially when life gets very, very difficult and we are tempted to justify our own dishonesty? In order to answer these questions, let's turn to God's Word today. And our passage, Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 to 37, okay? So we're going to read together, and I will work, let's work through this text. The scripture says this, Again you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. 
And do not take an oath either by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You know, this Sermon on the Mount, this little section that we here have here, is the second set of six statements that Jesus is preaching that begin with, you have heard that it was said. Right? And in each of these sections, what Jesus is doing is he's taking the culturally acceptable standards of his day that are propagated by the Pharisees of what is right in their culture, and he corrects this erroneous teaching with God's higher standards and shows a different way that he expects for people to live, right? Adultery isn't just condemned, right? But we show that lust in the heart is actually a problem in God's eyes. You can't just love your friends, but you're also commanded in God's eyes to love your enemies as well. And the list goes on as you read these things. Now, verse 33 isn't a direct quote from the scriptures, but it's a combination of ideas with the closest text, I think, being Leviticus chapter 19, verse 12. And Leviticus 19.12 reads this, You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. So, this is what God says about swearing falsely or taking an oath in his name for the purposes, I would say, of deceit. Now, I want to be clear here that when we're talking here about swearing, what we're not talking about is bad language that we use. That is bad, but the idea here is swearing and making promises in the name of God for the purpose of deceiving somebody. It's outrageous, and it's actually forbidden here in the Scriptures. Now, if you go to the United States, and Canada, we have something similar, but the States is quite specific, that if you're in the court of law, normally you have to give an oath. You swear to testify under oath. And you'll say something like this, I swear that the evidence that I shall give shall be the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So help me God. And so you invoke God to be a witness actually for the veracity of your words. Now, Bill Clinton in 1998 took an oath and he declared under oath as well about Monica Lewinsky, quote, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. Well, that perhaps has become one of the most famous quotes of the 20th century right now because we know how that turned out. It was an outright lie, and he was impeached as a result of it. And you have to ask the question, you know, for a leader of a nation or people who take these oaths and then blatantly lie to others, you take an oath that says, so help me God at the end? Do you have any fear of God before you? Do your words have any meaning whatsoever? How can you do that? Tell an entire nation and people that you did exactly not what you actually did. Lying while invoking God's name is a very serious thing. You know, Exodus chapter 20 verse 7 actually builds on this and talks about how serious it is. The text reads like this, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, I know for most of us, when we hear these words, take the name of the Lord God in vain, we normally think of the culturally common expression, oh my God. Now, as Christians, I don't think we should use that phrase whatsoever because it shows a very low view of God and I think it's disrespectful and it uses his name in a very cheap and flippant, dismissive fashion. It denigrates the greatness of his name. But I think the main point here about taking uh, God's name in vain has to do with taking an oath or making a promise to do something, but deceitfully using the name of God to trick people into believing you really mean what you say when actually what you really mean to do is to dupe them or to trick them and to take advantage of them instead. And the text here says, basically, God will hold you responsible for that sin. You will not escape. You will not be guiltless in his eyes. And worst of all, you functionally insult God by believing that either he doesn't see or his own words about the severity of doing this can be fully disregarded. And this insult, I think, to his greatness and to his majesty is nothing short of extreme blasphemy. Now, despite the sinfulness of taking oaths to deceive other people into thinking that you mean something when you actually don't mean it, I want to say that oaths and swearing things in the Old Testament is not intrinsically negative. 
There's a whole bunch of stories that you look in the Bible. So, for instance, if you look at Abraham and uh, Abimelech, Abimelech asks Abraham to swear him an oath because he realizes how powerful Abraham is and says, please, Abraham, swear to me that you will deal kindly uh, with my descendants after me. Swear by the Lord. And Abraham actually does swear by the Lord who's gone. David actually does something very similar when he's talking with Saul. Saul begs him and says, after he realizes David's a better man, he says, David, I know you're going to be king one day, but please do me this. Don't cut off any of my children when you're gone. And David actually swears to him in the name of the Lord is gone. You read also about something similar when you have Joshua uh, sending spies to go into the land of Canaan, and Rahab, actually the prostitute, hides them in her house. And then she makes them promise this. The text says in Joshua 2.12, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that, as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign. So the question we have to ask then is, if the Old Testament does not condemn swearing oaths, why does Jesus want to get rid of them in his teaching here? And in order to answer this question, I think we actually need to understand what was going on in Jesus' time and what he was reacting to. You know, in Matthew's gospel, we actually get a good clue as to what was happening in Jesus' time with regards to these fraudulent and deceitful oaths that people were taking, how the Jews were abusing it. If you read the prohibition that's given here, you realize there are at least four different types of oaths, right? You count them up in our passage we have read. There's by heaven, by earth, swearing by Jerusalem, the city of the great king, or swearing by your own head. So that's four already, four different types of oaths that the Jews were taking. If you go to Matthew chapter 23, verses 15 to 22, you actually learn about four different kinds of oaths that were being sworn at the time. The text says this, Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools. Which is greater, the gold of the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by everything on it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. You read this text and you realize that there are additional four things that Jewish people were swearing by, right? They're swearing by the altar, and they're swearing by the gold on the altar. They're swearing also by here the uh, temple and also by what's in it. Right? So, I mean, you have these things. You add them up. That's already eight. And, and let me tell you, there are way more than that. You know, why, why do they do this? You know, you, you see this. There seems to be some sort of hierarchy that they have in their mind for what's greater. And they're using that basically to, to say what oaths are binding and what promises are not binding. Why are there so many different kinds of oaths? You know, by the time that Jesus was walking the face of the earth, there had come a well-developed tradition amongst the Jewish people of not using or speaking the divine name of God, right? So from the time of the Babylonian exile, you know, all the way to like 3rd century BC or so on, the name of God was considered to be basically too holy. And so the Jewish people, instead of saying yod Hey vav Hey or Y-H-V-H, which we have in our Bibles as the name of the Lord, they would stop saying that and they substituted a different word, Adonai, which means Lord instead, so that they would never run into the trouble of maybe perhaps misusing the name of God. Now, as a result of this, they also began substituting the proper name of God in their oaths with other things and then substituting that further by swearing oaths not in God's name but over other things as well. And then they began to categorize all these other things by which they swore by based on their subjective level of importance that they gave to them. So if you look, for example, at the Jewish Talmud, which is a set of writings which basically shows kind of the laws and the teachings of the rabbis of their time, their interpretations of the scriptures, you get an idea of their traditions and just an idea of how pedantic they were about classifying different objects with regards to how strong the vow it was that you were made. Basically, they had made an entire religious system out of this. 
If you read Talmud Nedarim 14b, we read about an oath that's taking an oath with an item that is associated with a Torah scroll. Okay, this is what the text says here. When one takes a vow by associating an item with a Torah scroll, okay, so first five books of the law, a scroll of the Torah, and has not said anything, the vow does not take effect. However, he who associates the item with what is written in the Torah scroll, his statement is upheld. Since the name of God is written in the Torah, he has invoked God's name in his vow. If he associates the item with it and what is written in it, then his statement is upheld. Now, if you think that's confusing, verse 2 goes on to explain this. A what if the Torah scroll is on the ground? Whether one mentions the Torah scroll or what is written in it, his thoughts are concerning the parchment. That is, the physical scroll, as he naturally assumes that since the scroll is placed on the ground, the parchment must be blank. Therefore, the vow only takes effect if he mentions both it and what is written in it, indicating that he is aware that it is a Torah scroll. However, when he is holding it in his hand and associates the item with what is written in it, his thoughts are concerning the mentions of the name of God are in it, and therefore the vow is in effect. You see how ridiculous this actually gets if you keep going. You literally need a law degree. No wonder the Pharisees had jobs. Literally to tell somebody what is right. So when somebody swears an oath in front of you, You have to figure out whether or not that person's oath is actually legitimate or they're actually trying to cheat you. And you've got to know the law and the traditions really, really well. You imagine that somebody, you were living in that time, swore an oath over a Torah scroll on the ground with you, saying that they had a contractual obligation to pay you something for the services that you rendered to them. And then you go to court because the guy is not going to pay you. And you say, this guy didn't pay me the money. And the guy says, Torah scroll on the ground? Oh, you mean you thought that was a Torah scroll on the ground? Oh, I'm sorry, that wasn't Torah scroll. That was a scroll about Toro. Toro sashimi, you know, the kind of thing, the belly of the fish? You know, I got that from the library. Instead, I'm so sorry that you mistook the word Torah for Toro instead. Well, I guess according to the law, if we swore over, if I had known I was swearing over a Torah scroll, of course it would be binding. But since it's a Toro scroll as well, I don't have an obligation really to pay you anything. This is ridiculous, right? Any rational person would look at that and say, you lying, cheating, this is not a mistake. You knew full well what it sounded like and you did this on purpose to cheat me. I say that's how the deceitfulness of of the human heart works. You know how angry you would be if you felt completely duped by that. Why are you angry and why are you right to be angry? You are angry because somebody used the letter of the law against you and chose to go against the spirit of the law. Laws are created actually to uphold justice, and we get mad when someone finds a loophole in the laws and uses them against us in a legal but immoral way to do us harm. See, in law, actually finding loopholes to get around the law without breaking the law is actually called a term, it's called legal opportunism. You know, Nick Freeman is a British lawyer who is also known as Mr. Loophole, And he's famous because he has gotten a number of high-profile celebrities off of tickets and charges against them. When English footballer David Beckham was caught speeding, doing 20 miles an hour over what he was supposed to be doing in a low-speed zone, he got Freeman to work his case. And Freeman argued that since the police had delivered a notice one day late to his door, there was no valid reason to have his case, and he got the case dropped. When Manchester United football team's manager, Alex Ferguson, was caught illegally driving on the shoulder of the highway, Freeman took his case and argued that the manager was suffering from gastrointestinal problems and as a result of that was forced to use the shoulder and emergency lane on the highway to get where he was going, to, that is, to get to a toilet as soon as possible. And he argued that basically hitting the accelerator and using a non-driving lane was far safer than allowing diarrhea to explode in his car. Now, this could be legitimate. I don't know the particular circumstances of how his bowels were doing on that particular day. But here's the deal. 
given that Nick Freeman has a reputation for this, and on his website he advertises his name as being Mr. Loophole, and also the fact that he says that he does use loopholes to win his cases and you're to bring work to him, this suggests to me that he is an individual more concerned about exploiting loopholes and using the letter of the law to win his cases than upholding the spirit of the law. And we look at it and go, I just don't know if I would trust you. You know, I know you can win cases on that, but just, there's just something off about the way that you view the law. See, it's no wonder that safety groups and other people who have been victims of reckless driving are so mad, actually, with his work, saying, you're doing all these things, but what you're doing is you're violating the intent and the spirit of the law. People are going to get killed if you keep getting them off, and you don't treat reckless driving seriously. See, although the use of loopholes is legal, many people will look at it and say, that's immoral. How dare you do something like that? See, in Jesus' time, there were a lot of these legal things you could do with these oaths, but were immoral, and people understood this. The huge number of things that you had, could swear by had created a massive system of deception, and you needed a lawyer, basically, to figure out what to do with it. And Jesus, through all of this, puts a complete end to it by his uh, prohibitions. Instead of getting into an arguing about loopholes, what you can and you can't swear by, he goes right for the source. And he begins with two prohibitions by saying, guys, stop swearing by heaven and don't swear by earth. And he invokes, actually, Isaiah chapter 66, verse 1, which says this, Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you will build for me and what is the place of my rest? In other words, you have no right to be even swearing by these things. Forget about trying to quantify them about which is more important than the other. Heaven belongs to God. It's his throne. And guess what? The earth belongs to him as well. You don't own these things. So how dare you swear by them as if you can give them away? You can't. You have no right to insinuate that what you can offer, you, you have no right to insinuate you can offer the king's belongings. Prohibition number three basically is in the same vein, and he invokes Psalm 48, verse 2, which says, Beautiful in elevation is the joy of all the earth, Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. In other words, Jerusalem is the king's city. It's the place where God chooses to make place where he chooses to make his glory manifest and to show his greatness to all the earth for the sake of their joy. How dare you treat it so irreverently by using it in an oath? Now, okay, for, okay, everything belongs to the Lord, heaven and earth, everything in between. Well, what about yourself? Can you swear by your own head? In verse 36, Jesus argues that you don't have the ability to swear even over your own head. Why? Because you don't even have the power over your own head to make one hair a different color. You can't make it white. You can't make it black. And if you can't do such a little thing over this body that you think you supposedly own and only God can, guess who really owns you? You don't even own yourself. Don't think that you have the ability to swear by anything because you can't give heaven and earth. You can't give yourself. You don't have power over yourself. You're so limited. And therefore, since God is powerful and you belong to him, you can't even take your own life into your own hands and live how you want or choose to end your own life by suicide. Your life is not your own. And as we as Christians say, you were bought with a price. Especially, of course, your life is not your own. But every life belongs to the Lord. So at this point, after listening to Jesus, really, what is there left to swear by? How can you prove then what, that you mean what you say? Verse 37, the answer is really you don't need to. Jesus says this, let what you say be simply, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything else more than this comes from evil. That's it. In other words, what God wants for you as his follower is to be a person who is honest, a person of integrity, a person whom people can look at and say, you mean what you say by your words, and I can, I can take you at your word. See, the Jews at this time were deeply concerned with technicalities and swindling each other. But Jesus here shows again that what God is concerned with is not legalities, and, but actually a right heart and an honest heart, and those who have a heart that upholds the spirit and the intent of his law. And God's people are to be characterized by integrity. 
Now, at this point, you know, we need to ask ourselves the question, okay, is Jesus then guilty of contradicting the law or guilty of abolishing the law? And I think the answer to that actually is no. In Jesus' own words, in verse 17, he says, no, I did not come to abolish the law. I actually came to fulfill the law. See, if you understand the work of what Jesus was doing, the temple, the sacrificial system, the oaths, and all these things were passing away. And what Jesus was doing was that he was fulfilling Jeremiah's new covenant by ushering in a new era. He was going to go and die on the cross for the sins of people and create a brand new people who were bound to each other not by ethnic blood, but by his own blood, a people who have been formed in righteousness, given new hearts and a new life because of his finished work on the cross. What he would do by dying is that he would give his perfect life and give new hearts to them so that they would be born again. You know, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says that, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So when you are looking at the new people of God that Jesus was ushering into place, this is a people that we can look at and say, the old me is dead. The old, lying, cheating, lacking integrity self is gone. Though my name is still the same, I am a different person on the inside because the power of another one lives inside of me. My life will be marked now by following Jesus Christ and what he says for my life will go. I will live a life of integrity and truthfulness because that is the nature of the God whom I serve. See, Jesus was making something new in his people. You know, Paul actually reaffirms reaffirms this in Colossians chapter 3, verse 9, when he says, Don't lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So new self, old self is gone. So in other words, what Jesus was doing was saying, like, I am here to fulfill the full intent of the law. The law had all these stipulations, all these swearings, and all these things for a people who had hard hearts. But all that is done now with my work on the cross, there's a new people with a new heart who have the law of God written on their own souls. Forget about swearing anymore. You are just to be a people who are characterized by integrity. Let your yes simply be yes. Speak as God speaks as his beloved children. You know, friends, as we wrap this up and we think about this, you know, I have a question for you who are sitting here and those of you who are listening online. You know, what kind of a person are you? You know, are you a person of integrity, a truth speaker, a person whose word can actually be trusted without even a handshake? Or are you a person that actually needs a court to force you to do what you say that you're going to do? You know, there's a danger that comes, actually, if you have to use language like, I swear I'm telling you the truth now. If that's how you normally talk, The question you have to ask is, well, what about all the times when you're talking to me and you don't tell me you swear you're telling the truth? Should I expect that you speak only to me 90%, 80% truthfulness? And only when you swear you're 100% truthful? Are there two types of speech that you actually live by? Is that what you are as a person? There's a great danger, actually, of communicating this to people. See, we're supposed to be a people of integrity, even if we suffer for it. See, saying, I am a Christian, should mean something. You know, I once worked for a company um, when I was an engineer that got bought out by another firm, and as a result of that, new upper management came in, and they tried to uh, strike a number of backroom deals, uh, you know, with a few of us to try to get us to work, basically, against our current boss. Now, those of you who have ever been bought out and you work in the corporate world, you know exactly what this is like. Oftentimes, there can be a lot of friction. It's very difficult. You're put into awkward situations. People make political moves, jockeying against each other. There are only so many jobs left. You know, I hope I get one of them. My colleague, I hope he doesn't. It's ugly. The world is an ugly place, especially as you climb the ladder. I remember that my boss thought that a number of us, including myself, had betrayed him in these meetings and was very, very upset with this. It really affected our relationship. I remember actually in one meeting that I had with upper management telling them very specifically that there was no amount of money, no job perk that they could offer me, no opportunities in the States or even flying me to New York that could get me to do what they were asking me to do, which I felt would cause me to compromise my integrity. So I said, you have nothing to offer me. I remember later having a meeting with my boss 
And somehow or another, the topic came up, and I told him what had gone on in that backroom meeting, and I told him what I had said. I hadn't actually intended anything by speaking about that meeting. I was just trying to be honest and speaking about what was going on. I don't really want to hide things. And he looked at me, and his face changed. I remember him looking and saying to me, he says, Sam, do you know actually why I hired you? And I looked at him, I said, actually, I, have, I actually have no idea why you hired me in the first place. And he said, I didn't hire you, he says, for your skills. Because when you came here, your skills were zero. And I was kind of hurt by that originally because I thought, well, I graduated really well from my university. I thought I had some measure of skill that you read my resume. That's why I said, I didn't hire you for your skills, he said. I hired you for your character. And his beaming smile to me in that moment showed me and really encouraged my heart. I was suffering at that time, begging God. I'm like, God, why is this so difficult? Such a difficult situation. His smile to me showed me that in his own heart, he was so happy that he had judged my character rightly and that the trust that he had placed in me had not been broken. Now, I gave God thanks, you know, I mean, that day, saying, like, God, I'm so thankful that even though this was painful, that a non-Christian would notice the way that I live and say that I am a person of integrity and character in a corporate world that is known for dishonesty and for getting ahead by whatever means possible and taking care of yourself. Now, my question for you, you know, brothers and sisters, is integrity, is that integral to your life? Is it important? Or are you a pragmatist that says, I have to do what I have to do in order to make sure that I'm taken care of and you can't really judge me for doing these things? You know, is lying for you sometimes okay because you feel that you need to take care of yourself? Or is it not an option for you? Even when you stand to gain very big. You know, when you file your taxes, do you declare everything as it says to do on the form? Or do you take a calculated risk because you're intelligent and say there's 99% chance that the government really is not going to find out about this, so it's a really acceptable risk for me to be able to take? Or do you fear God and say it doesn't matter if there's a 99% chance, there's a 100% chance that God sees right now, and therefore I must be honest because that is who he has made me to be. You know, when a friend makes a terrible joke, like what was in the news recently with a recent NDP politician, basically, who had made a sexist joke about another politician nearby, are you the type of person who is so concerned with what other people think about you that you will simply go along with it, even though you don't like it, and laugh along with everybody else because everybody else is doing and will not take a stand for what you believe is right? Or will you choose to go against the grain and say, that is wrong, I will not laugh, and I don't want to be a part of this anymore? Or perhaps you're a sycophant. You know, your boss asks you for your opinion on something, but you know that if you say this, it will actually be offensive to him and you could lose your job. So you choose the lie and you say, that's, an, that, that's a perfect decision. No, I, I fully agree and I support you. You know, your boss might lose his job or get harmed down the road. At least you'll be safe. Do you flatter and not tell the whole truth? What about church? Do you talk one way at church and talk another way with your friends and with your family? If people were to see you outside in the way that you deal with your employees at your business, would they be shocked to learn that you are a Christian by the way that you act? You know, honestly, one of the greatest compliments that you can give people is not, wow, he's, uh, you're a successful person who inspires others. I think one of the greatest compliments that you can give to a person you can be poor, you can be rich, you could be no one of significance. One of the greatest compliments you can give to a person is you're the exact same person that you are outside the home as you are inside this home. Maybe you're working in an environment in which you're tempted because of the high stature of your job to use political, special, softening, cover-up language to lead people away from true problems that actually need to be addressed. You know, there's an American stand-up comic named George Carlin who once noted that Americans had invented soft, deceptive language to protect themselves because they can't handle the truth. 
He said, sometime during my lifetime, toilet paper became bathroom tissue. Used cars became previously owned transportation. Constipation became called occasional irregularity. Poor people don't live in slums. Now the economically disadvantaged occupy substandard housing in the inner cities. Now, I remember reading the story of a medical professional who, due to negligence, ended up killing a patient. The report that was published later to the media had the title on it, Therapeutic Misadventure. You know, you read that, okay, I'm no medical professional, but perhaps there is a usage for such a term as that. But if the purpose of such a term is to absolve or to hide or to obfuscate justice or to turn attention away from people who are actually culpable for a crime, that's deception and a form of lying as well. I don't care how sophisticated it is. See, Lying is such a part of our nature, and as we grow older, we just get better and better at doing it. And the question for us is, how can we stop this pattern of lying? Especially if your conscience is bothering you, even now you're saying, like, I've been living a life of deceit, I don't like it, but I can't see any way out of it, I have to do it. I have no choice, I need to look out for myself, what am I supposed to do? And I think there's just one answer for that. And the answer is, if you want freedom from your pattern of lying, if you want freedom actually to live life, come out of living under the shadow, come out of living a life of deception, you need the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, do you know why? It's because lying is all about manipulating the world around you to make it work for your good. As Kim Sirota said, right, why do people lie? We lie when the truth doesn't work. If I were to add that, I would say, it, when the truth doesn't work for us, for our benefit, and it doesn't go well with us, we choose to lie. See, now, if you believe that you're the only one in this world that is looking out for you and there is no such God, I can fully understand why you would justify your lying for yourself. You will justify and say, I have a kids to feed. I have a wife as well. I'm going to be sick. I don't have an opportunity. I, need a, I, I, I just have to do this in order to make things work. But if you believe the gospel, that there is a God who loves you and sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for your sins and has promised to look out for you and his steadfast love never ceases and just as we have sung, great is thy faithfulness, he will never let you down, then you don't have to do that anymore. You can rest in the trust in God who said, and say, I don't need to lie and be less than honest to ultimately look out for myself because I have a God who is ultimately looking out for me. And I know he loves me because he sent his son for me. He will never fail me. He will never leave me. And we can trust him. You know, Abraham had God swear an oath to him, well, because Abraham didn't have a Bible. He didn't know when God called him out of Ur of the Chaldeans to go and to this land, and I will give you many descendants. Abraham had nothing to go on, and yet he trusted God, and God swore an oath to him. What about us who have 2,000 years of biblical history from Abraham all the way to Jesus Christ, and also seeing 2,000 years of God's faithfulness in his church? He is absolutely trustworthy, and he has a fantastic track record. And we know he loves us because he sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world. Jesus Christ is God's promise to us. He is his sworn oath to us that he, will, he means good for those of us who put our trust in him. That will never change. Christ is the last word of God. He is the signature on the contract. God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us you ask the question, how do you know you can trust this God with your life? How do you know that you can trust him? And the answer is the cross, because of what he has already done. Now, I don't want you to think that in all this calling on God or, or taking an oath, saying that God is my witness, everything is, is, is evil or a bad thing. The Apostle Paul does it. You read the book of Romans, uh, chapter 9, verse 1, Philippians 1, 8. There are times when he says, God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. Yes. The point, though, is that those are few and far between, right? Don't swear by heaven or by earth or by any of the other things. The point is, there are times when you will say, God is my witness, but Jesus' point here is you don't need to speak this way on an ordinary basis. The way you are normally to speak and what you should be known as just simply being a person of integrity whose word can be trusted. See, lying is bad because it comes from a dishonest heart, a heart that rebels against God. And the truth of the matter is if you live this way in your life, you are a rebel against God and you need actually forgiveness. Or else you will meet his judgment seat one day and you will have nothing to be able to defend yourself with. See, if you want to curb your lying, you want to change, 
You know what lying has done in destroying your life, destroying your marriage, the sham that you have has destroyed maybe the life with your kids. There is one way, and that is to confess your sins to God and to take all of your anxiety, all the reasons why you lie, and to throw them on God and say, God, I, I've tried to trust myself. I've tried to make life work for myself, but all I've done is made a mess of him. I want to be an honest person right now, and what I need is for you to be for me and not against me. I need your gospel. I need your forgiveness because that's the only way I can have you and you are my ultimate hope in this world. So help me to live a life of integrity modeled after you because this is your offer to me. Help me to trust your gospel and to be different. Make me born again. Make me new and give me a new life to honor you. See, church, my prayer for us, you know, is that God would make us such a people who are known for our words and our deeds, who are consistent inside and outside, who honor our God wherever we go. And if you're not a Christian here today and you're listening to this perhaps online, this is what you need. Would you do business with God and confess your need for him and turn the crooked life that you've been living over to him and let him make you straight? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for loving us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you that the crooked, oh God, have been made straight. Thank you, oh God, that there is a way that leads to life now. And that, oh God, though many times we have sinned against you, we have taken your name in vain, we have lied, we have cheated, we have known your word as well, God, and chose to walk against you, oh God, your steadfast love, God, is still there for us if we should repent of our sins. As the Bible says, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from righteousness. God, don't let us live in our lies. Don't let us live in our sins. God, you'd warn us that if we go on sinning after deliberately after receiving in the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for our sins. God, help us never to outrage the spirit of grace and to live lives in which we take your grace for granted. Help us to live lives of integrity and honesty, O oh God, because we love our Lord and want to model him to the world. So, Father, we thank you so much, God, for what you have done for us. And, Lord, as we go into this world, help us, God, to be truth bearers, people of integrity. Help us to be people of truth, showing integrity in an age of dishonesty. And may we shine as the lights that you have commanded us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.